Hello, welcome to BGS English Revision Podcast. Time for some more Journey's End. I'm Mr Forster. And I'm Miss Yamanakis. And we're here today with a slightly, it might appear to be quite a tricky extract, but we're hopefully going to show you that it's not as tricky as it looks. Yeah, and we chose it, I, I chose this one actually because um, I just thought it was useful for you to have a go at something that might not be as obvious, and also because um, food appears and reappears at various points in the text, so actually, even if you had an extract where it was mentioned in passing, it's useful for you to be able to think about how um, food is used by Sheriff in the play. In fact, if you haven't listened to Miss Simulacus's wonderful Bonus Bites episode on food, I suggest you pause this podcast right now and go and listen to it, and then come back, and that will contextualise lots, lots of the things we're going to talk about in this episode yeah, today. Although I say, uh... About too many times in that podcast, that's, but that's never the, mind. The problem of recording your voice. Indeed. You'll discover what we, what we really sound like. So the title is, How Does Sheriff Use Humour Effectively at This Moment in the Play? So again, it's a slightly tricky question because obviously if you don't find the play funny, for whatever reason, um, we need to be clear, you're not going to write, I don't find it funny. Yeah. <laughs> and you've got to actually engage with what is the humour doing and what's its function and how is Sheriff using it? And it is, I, I think deliberately, actually, the humour here is pretty clunky in places, which is part of the caricaturing of some of the characters, which we'll talk about when we're analysing yeah. it. So this um, takes place at the very start of Act 2, um, and we're going to talk today a little bit about um, that juxtaposition with the end of Act 1, because whatever extract you get, it's always worth thinking. Um, how, you know, how does this fit in with the rest of the play? And remember, you will have a copy of the play in the exam with you. So you, it's always worth, isn't it, looking up the extract, yeah. having a quick flick before, quick flick afterwards. What is its context in the play? And I think also, um, because Journey's End is such an intense play and happens over such a short period of time, it's quite important if it's one that's starting first thing in the morning or it's in the evening or wherever, is to kind of be clear about that. Well, do you want to start by, um, yes. by, um, by talking through what happens in the extract and then we can read our thesis? Yeah. Have we told them to download the... Oh, uh, yes. If you haven't clicked on yeah. it yet, um, do click on the, the handout, which means you can read the whole extract. And actually, in many ways, a great revision tool is before you listen to this podcast, pause it right now, read the question, read the extract and think, what would you write about it? And then listen to me and uh, Mr. Monarchus rattle on about what we think that we'd say. And you can compare what you would have picked out already. Yeah. Okay, so um, here's the thesis statement then. This extract at the start of Act 2 is in stark contrast to the previous scene at the end of Act 1, where the audience has seen Stanhope's extreme reaction to the arrival of Raleigh to his company, and in particular, his decision to censor Raleigh's letters. Throughout the play, Sheriff juxtaposes moments of high drama and pathos with moments of humour and mundanity to provide some comic relief, and the motif of food is often used to this end. Mason... Um, and to a certain extent Trotter as the butt of humour in these scenes and here Sheriff also reveals the hierarchy and the snobbery that existed in the army um, during this period of time whilst also showing the significance of structure and routine in an otherwise violent and chaotic world. Yeah, so one thing, if you look at the handout, you'll see that we've kind of, Mr. Um, Adams has picked, has reduced this passage into kind of three different themes, because actually it's often not the best idea just to work through chronologically at the yeah. start of the Yeah, I think times. particularly with a scene like this, actually, and where think, nothing much really happens. And particularly with a play like this as well, I think, actually. So Mr. Adams has split it into looking at food and meal times, the significance of that, then the contrast with the previous scene, the end of Act One, and then finally looking at class hierarchy and snobbery. That's kind of the three sections that you'll have time yeah. probably 
to look at in 45 minutes. Yeah, and I mean, it's not the only way of doing it, but it just struck me when I was planning it as a kind of useful um, focus. So, um, and one of the things we were talking about, actually, just before we did this podcast, um, uh, we were talking about the fact, I think it's mentioned in one of the other podcasts, that um, when Sheriff was writing this play, he had some alternative titles in mind, didn't he? Yeah, um, suspense or waiting, yeah, the two early titles. Absolutely, which I think are, are worth thinking about because a lot of, a lot of the time in the play, and this is um, a, an example of that and why some of you might initially think it's hard to write about, actually nothing very much is happening. It's a play full of conversations, isn't it? People waiting, and all the action happens outside and the enclosed world, off stage, outside the world of the claustrophobic world of the dugout. So, um, yeah, so food and meal times. Yeah, do you want to um, read the topic sentence? Yeah, so, so um, Sheriff intersperses the action of the play with the meals that the officers are served in the dugout. These meals serve as a vehicle for some fairly heavy-handed humour, but they also give the characters some structure and routine in a chaotic world. Um, bear in mind that during the course of the action of the play, it was a metres away from the front line and days away from the great German attack, so the contrast is a particularly poignant one. Yeah, so is this... Is this it's a really interesting idea, isn't it? Because as you said, the play is one, um, as the original title suggests, of waiting and suspense. And therefore the humour, the question here is almost slightly misleading. How does Sheriff use humour effectively? The whole point of the humour is that it feels jarring. Yes. It feels awkward. It feels yeah. forced. Because Absolutely. these are men preparing for potentially, uh, you know, a life-changing, perhaps life-ending encounter yeah. um, uh, at the end of the play. And it's, it's also very much their way of dealing with those feelings. I think in the opening um, section, when um, Osborne um, uh, comes to take over, there's a conversation about something that happened and, and um, they were talking about getting bits in their tea. So it's a way of kind of minimising, really, the terror by making jokes about it. Yeah, so it focuses on the banality of absolutely. life to avoid the big questions yeah. that they're not talking about. Yeah. So, so this scene, we're going to have to talk about in this paragraph what they are talking about, but also, crucially, what they're not. Yeah, because they can't afford to talk about the things that they're really thinking about because... They can't do anything about it. They're stuck so there, are they? Should we start by thinking about Mason, this kind yes. of one-dimensional comic yeah. character, um, the conversation between him and Trotter that forms the skeleton of this extract? Um, what previously have we seen of Mason? Yeah, so, I mean, Mason really is, you know, he is a, a pretty basic caricature. If you're a cartoonist, you'd use about three lines to create Mason, wouldn't you? Um, uh, I think it's worth remembering as well that um, all the characters, though, and including Mason, who in the play, is, you know, his role is mostly as a cook, they're still soldiers, so they all go and fight as well. And we're, we're reminded of that in Act 3, when um, Mason has to plan cooking lunch yeah, around his time absolutely. in the trenches. Um, but, he, you know, in, in um, previous scenes, we've had jokes about the cutlets that you can't cut and the soup what flavour soup is is yellow soup and you know what kind of fruit we've got in the tin although that was a moment where if you remember um there's a kind of sense of trepidation about how Raleigh's going to react if it's the wrong kind of fruit so there's a sense that the meals are one of the things that's kind of holding everything together as well that you know they're expecting they're quite in a way they're quite formal aren't they they're, here they are by the front line they're not just yeah. grabbing a sandwich they're having like three course meals that somebody's serving them with soup and pudding but their three course meals are food that isn't that nice yeah, so it's, it's as strange as the trappings of formality yes. the outward side of formality with food that's probably actually quite disgusting yeah which is linked to the class thing which we'll <coughs> talk about later on as well so I guess the first thing really to, to look at engaging the language is, you know, it's just, it's, Act 2 begins with the lo um, Trotter pronouncing what a lovely smell of bacon. Yeah. Um, um, Mason says there's enough smell of bacon here to last for dinner. The good fat bacon, bacon rasher, um, fats, he likes a bit of lean too. Um, all these jokes about the bacon, the focus on the fact that the bacon doesn't actually have much meat yes. at all. The but tiny shrinking bit of meat in the middle. That the porridges are quite nice and lumpy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then yeah. if you remove the lumps, it will be left with just gravy. 
Um, all these jokes kind of comment on, they, they kind of witt- wittily engage with the... Witty-ishly. Witty-ishly. Nobody's going to find these scenes hilarious as no. well, so you don't have to pretend to think they are. It is just kind of making conversation. And I think, um, you know, as we say later on as well, there is an element that the two characters that engage in this kind of conversation the most are the, are the two kind of working-class characters as well. Um, yeah, which I think we'll come on to that later yeah. on, maybe. Um, what do we make of the, the significance of this exchange, then? The first of all, by focusing on the food. What is um, what, what might we say about this? Because obviously, visually, Trotter is a short and fat man. The stage directions describe him like that in Act 1. He's very different from the tall and thin Stanner. He speaks in a colloquial accent. And, yeah. a, a, you know, accent. He's, he's, he seems different. And what's his obsession with the smell of bacon at the start suggest about him, maybe? Well, there's a little bit later on, isn't there, where I think he says that he's um, that Raleigh's let him come down to have his breakfast and Oswald makes some joke about... I can't remember what he says. Yeah, it says... Um, Trotter says... Uh, uh, Oswald says, I thought you were on duty now. Trotter says, I'm supposed to be. Stand up and set me down to get my breakfast. He's looking after things till I finish. And Osborne says he's got a long job there. So there's a kind of running joke that Trotter is, you know, completely obsessed with food. Defined and, by his yeah. hunger. And it's also kind of parallel to the fact that he, he seems to be seen as, as kind of... Um, less intelligent and less sensitive, perhaps, than the Something other officers. We might challenge too. later on in this very essay, yeah. I think. Yeah. But, but so the, his obsession with food becomes almost metonymically associated with his status as an outsider, someone who, unlike yes. tall, handsome, aristocratic figures and middle-class figures of the, yeah. the other officers, he's just the working-class um, fat man. Absolutely. There's um, a long tradition of this, actually. You go out to Shakespeare, Henry IV, it's like Falstaff. It's this long tradition of the, the fat outsider yeah, who tags along with the, with the officers. He's the butt of the jokes from them, isn't he? And then he, he kind of jokes... Mason's sort of lower down in the hierarchy, so then he's kind of the butt of the jokes from there as well. Um, There's also something poignant, though, even in this discussion of his previous cooks, because as, as kind of Miss Eunice has put on the sheet, that actually the very sense of time here that Trotter has known multiple cooks, presumably because... Yeah. Partly because he's moved up from the ranks, but perhaps partly also died. presumably died. Yeah. And the sense of... Um, war going on, you know, being endless, the sense also of, you know, even the, the one who didn't die, the plumber who was a prize cook, who went home pretty fried after he set himself on fire. Yeah, I mean, again, that's kind of just thrown in there, isn't it, as a kind of a light-hearted comment, where obviously that we're talking about really serious life-changing injuries then. So, so I guess the kind of first point then about food, the significance of food and mealtimes here in this extract, there's something awkward about the humour. There's something deliberately uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, they're laughing about dead cooks, they're laughing about burnt, life-changing injuries to this other cook. They're making jokes about Trotter and his weight and his hunger. And it's a distraction, isn't it? As it's well as giving yourself something bits. to do. Yeah. For, you know, other times in the play, they kind of reminisce and tell stories about the past, um, you know, or they play games or whatever it is. And, and then, then the meals and the food are another kind of way of doing that. Because essentially, you know, here is it's morning and again they're waiting to go back out, aren't they? I think that links it quite nicely into our second section of the yeah. essay. So what, what are we going to look at next? So this second one is um, kind of links back to the actual question itself, which is um, juxtaposition of this scene with the previous one and therefore the kind of way the dramatic impact um, works. And, you know, like any playwright, um, and it'll be true of your Shakespeare play as well, um, you know, you, you think about the kind of order of the scenes and often when you had a moment of really high tension and high drama, as we had at the end of Act One, where um, we've seen... Um, uh, stand up, um, lose control really, isn't he? Yeah. he has to be put to bed, by to bed by Osborne. We see his vulnerability and so on. Um, the next morning, 
you know, the first thing you'll get is Trotter kind of cheerily coming on, talking about the smell of bacon and so on. So it does give, it gives the audience a, a moment, a kind of breathing space, doesn't yeah, it, really? It punctuates the moment of high drama, yeah, doesn't it, with these absolutely. moments? absolutely. So Sheriff juxtaposes the pathos and high drama of Raleigh's drunken behaviour at the end of Act One with the mundanity and the humour of this scene, and the contrast is significant. Yeah, um, um, we say in the bullet points there as well that it's uh, always worth looking carefully at stage directions, I think particularly in this play, and particularly at the beginning of the scenes, they often introduce the motif of a light, and we have both the pale shaft of sunlight um, and the candles at the same time, don't we? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's crucial, isn't it, that like Act One, it takes place in the crepuscular hours, so that's the hours either dawn or dusk, yeah. twilight. It's neither light nor dark. It's neither light nor dark. And also, crucially, the hours often that attacks were staged. Yeah. Um, they don't, attacks don't play, take place at night. They don't take place in the light of day. They take place in dawn. So there's this. There's something ominous about this, isn't this? The twilight, the in-between yeah. hours, the light, the light that kind of uh, that comes in, the pale shaft of sunlight that shines yeah. down the steps. Because the whole play takes place underground in this claustrophobic yes. dugout. The only light, the only hope exists outside the sun yeah. that you can see in the distance. And in terms of the staging, the hope is off stage, isn't it? The, the yeah. light. Yeah, and the candles are there the whole time, whether it's night or day. And and, and you may remember as well that right at the end of the play, um, after um, Raleigh's death, the candle goes out. I think. If I remember rightly um so that candle is kind of representative of you know the yeah. flickering candle is the kind of brevity and fragility of life and you know when we know the numbers that were lost in this war yeah and the, and the dark corner where the, the sunlight can't pierce the sunlight yeah. doesn't reach a sense isn't there of the of the inner darkness the figurative darkness that's descended yeah. upon these men they're making jokes but the very staging of these jokes in a claustrophobic dark dugout in the flickering candlelight which, undermines which, the very humour of the scene. Yeah, even though this is kind of their place of safety, it's a pretty fragile place of safety, isn't it? I think it's really important when you're writing about a play to think about the staging, to mention what it yeah. would look like for an audience. Yeah. And therefore, in a question like this, which is on humour, we have to keep the focus on humour. We're not just saying, here's another joke. <laughs> We're saying, how does a show frame the humour of the yeah. scene? He frames it in this dark and disturbing way in this crepuscular light, the dark corners, the candles. Um, there's clearly a symbolism here that he's playing with, isn't there? And it's juxtaposed, isn't it, with Trotter, who comes whistling gaily yeah. and rubbing his hands as he yeah. walks in. It's like, where's my breakfast? <laughs> um, the, 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 again, he, he, he seems incongruous with the setting. He doesn't seem to fit in, does it? He seems, his, like, his very jovial tone, his yeah. jokes seem... I think he's, I mean, I think, I think there's partly, which we'll talk about in the next one, the kind of cli- class hierarchy and snobbery. But I think he's also another kind of trope, isn't he, in a lot of kind of war drama of the kind of, you know, this is the best of British, really. Here's the kind of, you know, um, stalwart, valiant, brave kind of character who, you know, is going out to war and is kind mm-hmm. of just treating it like it's a, another everyday job. Um, so, um, and I mentioned in the bullet points actually that at the end, right at the end of the extract, he mentions the bird that's singing its heart out, um, which is quite poignant, isn't it? Which slightly moves away from the kind of humour and the conversations yeah. about food as well. I, I think it's crucial because, again, we've got to remember the question is on the use of humour. But I think the crucial thing is actually that Trotter is not entirely defined by his humour, is no. it? But actually, at the end, we see a hint of something more complex to him. He's not simply this papier-mâché caricature. No. He's actually, he's not simply an exaggerated stereotype of, of the working-class um, officer. He actually has feelings and an, appreci- an aesthetic appreciation of the world around him. And I think also it's the case, isn't it, that e- each of the characters in this play has to find their own way of coping, and they cope differently. You know, stand-up drinks... 
Um, Trotter, you know, is cheerful and kind of talks a lot about food. Osborne kind of looks after people and has the odd reminisce. So each of them have their own ways of, of coping. Um, and humour is is the way that um, Trotter chooses in these kind of food scenes, yeah. using Mason. Um, <clears throat> Even here, when he talks about the bird, he says, I was up in that old trench under the brick wall just now, and damned if a blooming little bird didn't start singing. Didn't half sound funny. Sign of spring, I suppose. That yeah. Trotter can't help but see the beauty of the bird's song as something funny. Um, something, uh, you know, blooming um, didn't half sound funny. Yeah. The, the idea that he can't simply accept... Um, his feelings of hope that the bird clearly seems to symbolise for him some kind of an appreciation of the beauty even in the midst of the horrors of the trenches there's, there's life, there's beauty, there's spring the sign, again a season which itself symbolises new beginnings and hope yeah, he can't I, see it as that, he sees it as something funny but I think, I think that's partly because of the, the kind of contrast isn't it there's the bit earlier on, I can't remember which character says it and I can't remember if it was him but there's the bit, do you remember, where they um, they all pull on their gas masks because there's this odd smell. It's the pear smell. And it's, it's a tree, it's a tree in yeah. blossom and it's as though they've been so sort of brutalised by everything that's been happening in the front line that they can no longer engage with nature so there's something that's just the smell of spring and, and, and beauty they assume is something deathly and poisonous. So I think there's a little bit of that with the bird here, isn't there? It's, yeah. in, it's incongruous, it doesn't it's quite fit in. It's, it's defamiliarised. Like so every day, defamiliarised is a great word to use the idea of looking at something that seems familiar and making it seem unfamiliar. The sense that actually it doesn't fit into the world of the trenches. Yeah. The, Which the, is a nightmarish, unreal yeah. world, isn't it? The men are so, they're yeah. cut off from the everyday decent yeah. life that bird song seems strange. It's only yes. it's gun song that they've been, gun, gun song, gun, gun fire that they've been accustomed <laughs> I like to. I like gun song. Um, there. So should we look then? At yes, the last let's look at the third summary. one. So again, um, with this question, there are quite a lot of strands that are things that you could talk about in other essays as well, because the presentation of the characters, which we've been talking about a little bit, are you know there was a strong hierarchy. You had the officers who were mostly public school boys like Stanhope and Osborne and Raleigh, um, and then you know the ordinary um, soldiers. But you do get characters like Trotter who've kind of crossed over, haven't they, who've been kind of made into officers. Apart from anything else, the officers are in short supply because they were dying at great speed. So, yeah. you know, Raleigh's death at the end of the play is, is really a reflection of the fact that, you know, young officers in their first few weeks were very unlikely to survive. Um, yeah, so Trotter and Mason are the characters who tend to dominate the moments of comic relief, and this is often linked to yeah. food and meal times. And um, therefore the, the kind of slightly clunky kind of humour that we've been talking about. Well, we were speaking before we started the podcast of Trotter itself being an aptronym, which is a, a, a name of something that seems apt, that represents yes. Trotter associated with pigs, associated yes. with eating, associated with hunger. It's, it's kind of like Piggy and Lord of the Flies. And a certain kind it's of jauntiness as well. Yeah. Like trotting along trotting in the midst along. of all this. It caps, it, in fact, it'd be worth writing about both sides of that. The trotting along, the jaunty, the jaunty trot versus yeah. the, the pig flesh. Um, the two sides of Trotter. The, the, and what else do you make of Trotter in this scene? Well, I think he is... Um, and I think part of... It, I think in his own way, he also does what Osborne does. I think there's a kind of similarity between them, which is they are two characters who kind of take on the mantle of um, trying to make life seem as normal as possible, um, you know, trying to make sure that new characters like Raleigh are kind of all right. In and a way, actually, he in takes Osborne's place at the end when Osborne yes. dies. He is the one who's appointed yes, second in command. And actually, Stanhope 
is fantastic with his troops, but that's something we only hear about, we don't see it. But actually, when he's with the officers, it's like he really doesn't have anything left to give them. That's the point at which he's trying to kind of regroup himself, and he does that by drinking. Um, whereas Osborne and, and Trotter are the ones who kind of try and keep things going in their own way. Um, yeah. And I think the humour is kind of part of that. And this scene, um, is, it does actually reveal something about him, which is important, because class and hierarchy is so important in the play. He reveals that when I was in the ranks... We had a prize cook. It's the first yeah. time his accent has, of course, marked him out as other from the yes. start. He speaks the way he speaks is 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 visually on the on the stage in the script, and obviously in terms of his accent on stage, far more marked. And, and in terms of the vocabulary that he uses as well, which does distinguish him from the it, others. It sets him out as part of a different world yeah. from the public schoolboys. But here we learn that he was in fact raised from the ranks. That he's a he's a different class of man from yeah. from the other officers, um, and yet he. Is very comfortable in this world. Yeah. He's comfortable accepting, even when he's the butt of the jokes, he's, he's comfortable accepting that, isn't he? I think it also suggests as well that they're, you know, beyond the kind of jokes and the humour, that that kind of shows us a real kind of resilience as well, that to rise from the ranks um, here shows that he, um, you know, he obviously is a really good soldier and has coped well with um, everything that's happening. And therefore his humour, far from simply setting him up as some kind of comic fool, actually, in many ways, is a sign more of his complexity of a yeah. character who has yeah. coping mechanisms to deal and, with... And maybe healthier things. coping mechanisms than somebody Except like Stannard, who, you know, who, who loses just, control. Because yeah. I think, as we said earlier, that, that um, Stannard kind of levels the accusation at him um, when he's talking to Osborne about how nice it would be to be like someone like Trotter who has no imagination, doesn't feel this kind of terror. But actually, that's Stanhope's own snobbery. I think as an audience, we're not expected to agree with that. Um, you so know. We, I guess we could talk here about dramatic irony, couldn't we? That yeah. Actually, that, that clearly we as an audience are meant to recognise the more sympathetic, more com- the complexity of Trotter that just isn't evident to the other officers in the, yes. the dugout. Which, which again tells us something about um, you know, the public school system and the class system um, and, you know, during the First World War in the early 20th century as well. And then, of course, Mason is even lower in the hierarchy. He refers yeah. throughout to the other officers as sir um, he he like Trotter is the butt of humour isn't he they joke about his food they joke about his poor culinary expertise I mean he is in this um, sense as well in the dugout he kind of replicates the servants that um, you know uh, people like um, uh, Raleigh and um, yeah. Stanley may well have had at home as so well so we see the, the dugout there for, yeah. for all of its kind of like horrors and muddiness, it, it's a microcosm, isn't it, of the wider yes, class system? Yes, but obviously, it will, of course, is. be really impacted by if you just read something like Brides Had Revisited, you realise that what do the world wars of the early 20th century do to the class system? They, they totally mix yeah, it up and absolutely. change it. I mean, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, by the, time, by the time we get to the end of the Second World War, that has, well, I wouldn't say it's disappeared completely, it's been dismantled yeah. from the way Certainly that it was. Certainly been challenged, uh, it? Yeah. Uh, I do think it's true, though, that. Mason, perhaps, whereas there is a complexity to Trotter, I think Mason doesn't really ever rise above the, the caricature. He's fetching, carrying. He's the kind of. But he allows, what he does do is he allows the others to create this kind of narrative and, and the jokes around food, which, you know, they might be instigated by Trotter, but the others all take part in them as well. Yeah. And part of um, the humour in Mason's language comes from the juxtaposition between his elaborate politeness that we might associate more with a restaurant or servants in a country house yes. and the, the disgusting food he's bringing. So, for example, when Trotter says, yeah. take the lumps out of my um, porridge, Mason says, and just bring you the gravy, sir. Very yeah. good, sir. Um, which is, 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 is kind of the language of service, the language of a waiter, but he's talking about just bringing, like, 
watery. I mean, something you, you might like to do if you've got time is um, there's a, a Blackadder series on the First World War, which um, really kind of sends up this whole kind of, you know, trench humour and life in the trenches and so on. Um, and, and sometimes Mason to me is slightly sort of, you can sort of see where um, the Blackadder writers kind of got it from. Um, but he, we were saying earlier, well, before we started the podcast, that Mason himself, though, is also a soldier. So yeah. for all that, he's, they're all engaged in the same thing. When, when push comes to shove, they're all out there in the front line, aren't they? Absolutely. So I guess I'm just looking at the time here. Um, yeah. So what is our conclusion then? Um, it really, this extract allows the sheriff to use the humour to contrast with the tension and the, the, the building tension as the, the whole play builds towards the climax of Act 3. Um, the humour is mundane, the humour is everyday, the humour is perhaps a coping mechanism. Yeah, and, and your final point part of the waiting and, and yeah. to, you know, break up the suspense. What's your final point about modern audiences as well? Because that's, that's perhaps something we could acknowledge as well in our Yeah, audience. I mean, I think, I think our, our taste in, in kind of, you know, plays and things has changed. And I think a contemporary audience might have found those kind of jokes slightly more um, amusing um, than we do. And they are quite heavy handed. But, but, you know, what I'm arguing in the conclusion there is that's kind of part of the point. They're keeping cheerful in the face of death and adversity. So actually having to work quite hard. Yeah, um, and they're they're not doing the kind of gallows humour thing where they're talking directly about the things they're frightened about. So they're doing it indirectly, and the food is the sort of mechanism through which they can, you know, have a go at being lighthearted to joke about something. And there are some theories about comedy that kind of take the song that we could maybe finish with. Just the idea that actually <clears throat> humour itself can have an effect of of, of relief of addressing. Of, 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 of avoiding a topic, of engaging yeah. a topic. Humour can have a social I think function. You, I'm sure you do that. We all definitely do that. There are times yeah. where you might make jokes about things that with your particular group of people, other people might not think it was funny. Um, but you do, because you're part of that. And they are, for all that we've talked about, the kind of class hierarchy and snobbery and so on, actually they are all united in the fact that they are very likely to die and they all have to go in the front line and whether face the German the, guns. and whether it, yeah. you're the officers... Golden, golden lads and lasses, masters, chimney sweepers come to dust. Thank you.